This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Wisconsin Republicans are pushing for an amendment to the state constitution to make it more difficult for incarcerated individuals to get out on bail, the Associated Press reports. The move comes after a man who was out on bail drove his car through a Christmas parade last November. Current state law says that bail is only to make sure that a defendant will appear in court. The change would require the courts to consider the circumstances surrounding the defendant, specifically around the threat they would pose to others. Because this would be an amendment to the state constitution, Governor Tony Evers would not have an opportunity to veto the change. The Assembly's Judiciary Committee is scheduled to hold a public hearing on the amendment tomorrow. An assembly bill currently making its way through a committee would require high schoolers to complete one credit of financial literacy in order to graduate, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. K-12 schools are already required to include financial literacy in their curriculum. This newest bill would add to these requirements. Proponents of the bill, such as Representative Alex Dahlman, a Republican from Green Lake, say the requirement would help equip students to make financial decisions as young adults. Opponents argue that this bill requires additional resources, adding to the struggles that schools already face with budget and staff shortages. People in the Wisconsin prison system may soon be able to take courses towards a bachelor's degree from the University of Wisconsin system. The Associated Press reports that UW Interim President Tommy Thompson is working with the UW system to expand higher education opportunities in state prisons through a pilot program set to start in 2024. Thompson has expressed regret over his role in the massive expansion of the prison system while he was governor from 1987 to 2001. Thompson now says he wants to shift focus towards rehabilitation instead of prison growth. The pilot program is expected to start in the autumn of 2023. Hourly employees of the Madison Metropolitan School District still have not been paid for working overtime hours as the district grapples with the ripple effects of a nationwide hack of a certain payroll software. That's according to reporting from WISC-TV, which covered that after seven weeks, the district has finally arrived at a workaround system to pay overtime to its hourly employees. The catch-up pay is slated to kick in on the next paycheck. NPR reports that about 8 million employees nationwide were affected by this hack. A local union spokesperson says hundreds of custodial, maintenance, and food service workers in the Madison School District have been directly impacted in their ability to make payments because of their withheld paychecks. The issue could also delay forms needed during tax season. And now for today's COVID numbers. There were 3,300 confirmed cases for the virus yesterday, with a daily average of 5,562 cases each day over the past week. These numbers continue a downward trend of infections across Wisconsin, as fewer people test positive for the Omicron variant. There were an additional 39 deaths from the virus reported yesterday, with an average of 24 daily fatalities reported over the last week. Currently, 63.3% of Wisconsinites have received at least one dose of the vaccine, a number the Wisconsin Department of Health hopes to increase. After the U.S. Food and Drug Administration officially granted its full approval of the Moderna vaccine today, DHS continues asking everyone who is eligible but still unvaccinated to make time to do so. That approval comes just in time as a new Omicron subvariant has detected in Dane County today. WISC-TV reports that this is the first case of this subvariant detected in the state so far. 
Early data shows it may be even more infectious than the initial Omicron strain, though officials have said it is too early to say what effects it may have on the situation in the state. And now on to today's top stories. Well, the Madison Bus Rapid Transit System has gotten a lot of attention from both the mayor as well as general public. There's another plan in the works to redesign the city's bus routes. WORT producer Nate Weggehout has the story. Madison transportation officials have picked their plan to redesign the city's bus system, but public input on how the city's buses should run is still needed. It's all part of a plan called Network Redesign, a plan to alter the city's bus system to make them more effective. To help explain the complex issue of redesign, here's Keith Furman, a Madison Alder on the city's west side. So the goal of um, the redesign was to look at our entire system, take into consideration that bus rapid transit would be implemented first uh, east to west and then uh, eventually uh, north to south, but look at the, the entire city um, and see, uh, come up with a, a logical way to, to structure transit um, to be accessible. The goal with with it was focused on uh, something called a, a, a ridership alternative, um, which prioritizes frequent service for um, specific places. Network redesign was first proposed in spring of 2021, and it's slated to be wrapped up by this spring. And it proposes two possible models, one that prioritizes frequent service and one that prioritizes coverage of neighborhoods. The plan proposed last night is called the ridership alternative. It would reduce the number of bus lines to just seven, but is designed so that people would have to wait less time at any given stop. Currently, there is around a 30-minute wait at bus stops, with some stops only running once an hour. Under the new plan, half of the bus routes would run every 15 minutes, and the other half would run every 30 minutes. Though the plan has been in the works for close to a year, it garnered some controversy last November during city budget deliberations when a group of five alders proposed an amendment that would temporarily halt funds for the related project of bus rapid transit, or BRT. Until until plans for network redesign were completed. The amendment was spearheaded by Council President Syed Abbas, who was concerned that residents of the city's north side would be left underrepresented with bus access. The amendment failed to pass last November. Abbas still has concerns with the new network redesign plan, saying that the proposed route would not cover densely populated areas on the north side. You do not have dense residential area to really connect with people. So running every 10-minute service network redesign on Packer Avenue instead of Sherman is also kind of like concerning. And I do think so when we talk about equity and accessibility, uh, these are the some area where we are missing the mark. Abbas says that although he sees issues with the plan, he is overall supportive of the alternative. Equity for Madison's underrepresented communities was a button issue at last night's Transportation Policy and Planning Board meeting. Here's Daniel Costantino with the consulting firm that helped create the plan. And you can see that we targeted the service and the lines that we drew to make sure that we would keep service um, as close as possible to as many low-income people as possible. We also didn't just look at where low-income people live, we looked at a variety of places where they go, and that includes their jobs. But what I'm showing you here is a map specifically of um, low and mid-cost grocery stores. 
These are places where people need to go and people need to go to them relatively regularly. And not only that, places where there are grocery stores tend to be places where there are a lot of other vital services that people need often. And so that was another item that we paid attention to. According to last night's meeting, around 50% more low-income residents would be within a quarter mile of a stop that runs every 15 minutes than the current plan. Additionally, around 25% more people of color would be within a quarter mile of one of these stops. The plan will next be presented at a public meeting, which has not yet been scheduled. After leaders gather public input, the whole plan is expected to head to the Madison Common Council later in spring, with changes to routes to be made by fall. You can find the maps as well as the entirety of last night's presentation on the web version of the story at wortfm.org. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wegehout. It's now 6.16 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Madison's historic districts all have different standards of how they are maintained. After all, they were all designated as historic at different times over several decades. But now the city is looking to unify its standards for how historic districts are preserved, which can be a problem when each area is unique. To learn more about the process and how the public can voice their opinion, WRT producer Nate Buggyhout spoke with a member of the Madison Landmarks Commission. This Thursday, the City of Madison Landmark Ordinance Review Committee will hold a public meeting to discuss changes to the preservation standards of all historic districts in Madison. To learn more, I'm talking with Anna Andrzejewski, Chair of the Madison Landmarks Commission. Anna, thank you so much for talking with me today. Great. It's great to be here. Thank you. So just sort of starting things off here, why are you updating the preservation standards here in Madison? What's going to change with this update? So the process is has been ongoing for several years, um, and it actually uh, was not initiated or even led necessarily by the Landmarks Commission. The Landmarks Commission actually implements Um, the ordinances and the standards uh, when projects come up that uh, take place within our historic districts. So the Landmarks Ordinance Review Committee uh, has been operating for some time. People have rotated in and off uh, of it, but it uh, several years ago undertook a process to try to make the uh, ordinance more legible, both for the public, uh, people that actually are, are undertaking projects, Um, for builders and contractors that actually uh, work on the fabric of our city, and then also for the Landmarks Commission, making it easier to review the projects when they come before us. How did you come to 
decide on what needs to be changed and how do you come up with the changes? Is there some sort of process? Do you go into the neighborhoods or do you just learn about the different properties themselves? What's the process of creating these changes? So the process is really a complex one. One is just taking a look at the fact that our uh, landmark districts in the city of Madison have been identified over a 50-year period. That's hard to believe, but actually um, they've sort of, uh, they became designated at different points in time. So part of realizing this uh, and, and bringing this to fruition was really realizing that it's been sort of a reactive process versus a proactive process. So part of the way that we've done it is simply looking at and realizing that the different districts had widely differing standards, widely differing uh, ways of sort of assessing uh, how change could happen in these districts. Part of it, too, was, yes, in fact, getting feedback from uh, stakeholders, and that includes property owners, um, interested citizens within the citizen within the city of Madison that have a vested interest in historic preservation, um, and then contractors. Um, sitting on the Landmarks Commission, as I have for the last seven years, you know, I, I've witnessed different projects come before the commission and seeing bewildered looks on the faces of uh, all of these parties who have been like, you know, especially builders and contractors, for example, who are like, well, wait, when I did a project in Third Lake Ridge, this was allowed, whereas now I'm in University Heights and it's not allowed. Um, so part of it was just listening, um, taking a critical perspective, sort of stepping back and really seeing that the standards differed so widely across the different districts that it wasn't clear to the public, to builders and contractors, and even sometimes to members of the commission, um, what rules we were following. With these neighborhoods specifically, these five historic districts, what makes them so special to preserve them? What is it about them that makes it necessary to go and preserve them? That's a great question. <laughs> um, and part of it has to do with the fact that each district um, contributes something different to the city of Madison um, in the sense that it has a different place in the city's history. This is not surprising. You know, they were built at different points in time, have different kinds of resources, et cetera. And it's important to recognize that even as the city works toward adopting a more uniform process for evaluating how changes are made in the district, that's not going to diminish the fact that, say, First Settlement, uh, our sort of oldest district, uh, in the sense that it has uh, probably the oldest properties within it, that that differs from, uh, say, University Heights, which has um, certainly older properties, but you know many of them were built in the early 20th century. So we can still have a consistent set of standards while recognizing that the different districts um, actually um, have sort of different historical narratives, different things that they tell about our city. So to be more concrete about it, University Heights really tells a story of suburbanization uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century, whereas First Settlement, as its name would imply, uh, really is, protects some of the older buildings uh, sort of in the commercial area uh, or in the older area of the city around the square. So they, they tell different um, narratives about Madison's history at different points in time. Having a uniform set of standards will actually, I think, help clarify that history 
make it um, really more understandable to the public. With all of these different neighborhoods getting one unified ordinance, you said that they all sort of have their own thing that makes them special. Were there any difficulties in deciding what is the best course of action to take for all of these neighborhoods? Was there any sort of give and take with figuring out the best plan of action? Yeah, there's always um, give and take. And I realize that not everyone is, is going to be happy with the outcome. Certainly having different ordinances is something that uh, we heard from citizens and we we really did hear um, both the Landmarks Commission as well as the Landmarks Ordinance Review Committee in charge of writing this ordinance. We really did hear that there were some that wanted to preserve district-specific ordinance uh, sort of language and certainly that's important. But if I can give you a very concrete example Um, I'm going to try to suggest why we think we've arrived at a kind of middle ground with this. Um, Two different districts, and I can't remember the specifics, but um, you can read the ordinance language or come to one of the meetings uh, in the next few weeks to talk about it. Um, One of the districts talks about um, what you can see from the street. So if you make a change to a historic building, you evaluate um, based on what you can see from the street. Well, if you're standing at one point, you may be able to see the side and the front of the building, for example. The other district-specific ordinance talks about the street facade, meaning the side of the building that faces the street. So that is very, when you're trying to evaluate those things, it's very, very different because one depends on perspective. One is based on the building itself. What we're trying to do in the middle ground we've tried to achieve is come up with a consistent set of sort of standards by which you evaluate. So, for example, all districts would be evaluated by, say, what you can see from the street, or all districts could be evaluated by street facades as your criteria. So you can do that um, so that the process is still consistent in terms of what you're looking at. And the middle ground comes in because we will hopefully, uh, shortly after this ordinance is approved, come up with what we're calling design guidelines that will be more district specific, that will talk about what new construction in these historic districts will look like. That's what's really important. Having consistent policy to make evaluations and decisions, that cuts across all of the districts, but also using design guidelines, sort of really conveying the special qualities that each of the five districts um, has. That's really what we feel we've achieved here, and and hopefully it can please a lot of people. So we have a consistent policy, but we also recognize the special characteristics of each of Madison's five historic districts. Now, you mentioned a little bit earlier about the public meetings that are going to be held. Let's talk about those meetings, specifically the one that's coming up this Thursday. Uh, What do you plan to discuss at the meeting on Thursday here, and what do you sort of hope that the public gets out of these meetings? I'd encourage everybody to come. <laughs> I actually am not running the meeting, so I can't, I can't uh, really tell you precisely how it's going to work. But from what I understand, these are virtual meetings, and there's going to be representatives um, there from the Landmarks Ordinance Rewrite Commission, Landmarks Commission members like myself, as well as city staff who are going to be there to present uh, the logic and reasoning behind what we've arrived at at this particular juncture Then there are going to be breakout sessions, as I understand it. There will be members of uh, the LORC committee, as well as Landmarks Commissioners, in the breakout rooms themselves. This will give members of the community a chance 
to speak directly with uh, folks that are that are making and implementing the policy and conveying their input on what they think this should look like. These are public meetings that are designed to gather input and theoretically make change in what is still a draft ordinance. Public meetings uh, really are the way that the public can have a voice at this critical juncture. We have a draft ordinance and we need feedback. So I, I again, I'm not running or planning the meeting, but I gather that the breakout rooms uh, that will happen are specifically designed to give people the opportunity to provide concrete feedback. I would also add that uh, a copy of the draft ordinance, both the new ordinance itself as a PDF, as well as a draft ordinance that identifies the changes that have been made, both of those are available on the City of Madison website. Uh, it's a site that's uh, called the Historic Preservation Plan. So it should be pretty easy for folks to find. Please look at that if you plan to go to the meeting ahead of time and come with your questions and feedback. Everyone really wants to hear it. So, Anna, we're running low on time here. Do you have just any quick final thoughts that you'd like to share with us here? One thing I'd like to say is that um, that I didn't convey earlier that I think is really important is that this was undertaken with an eye to keeping our preservation policies really on the cutting edge. Um, Madison really has the potential here to come up with a state-of-the-art uh, ordinance, so to speak, and, and at the same time follow best practices uh, in preservation. And that's really what we're trying to do here, it, to make uh, the actions of the Landmarks Commission um, legible for the public, to, to really understand better why we do what we do. Having consistent standards is really going to make that easier. It's going to see less, seem less sort of um, random, less subjective, we hope, uh, and, and we really want a preservation policy that works uh, for not just the commission, not just for property owners, but for the city as a whole. It's the best way we can steward our historic resources. I've been talking with Anna Andrzejewski, chair member of the Madison Landmarks Commission, about updating the preservation standards of historic districts in Madison. A public meeting will be held this Thursday, February 3rd, to discuss these changes. You can find information on that meeting at the Historic Preservation Plan page on the City of Madison website. Anna, thank you again for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks so much for the opportunity. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Cardinal Call examines a UW symposium on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Wildlife Weekly cares for an elusive and ill red fox. Radio astronomy gazes upon an enigmatic blinking in the heavens. And now we'll take a quick break and then check in on some world headlines. Back in a... Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. 
This week, Cardinal Call producer Hope Carnop and reporter Claire La Liberty examine a campus visit from reporter Nicole Hannah Jones, creator of the 1619 Project, who came to Madison last week to give a symposium about the historical impacts of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Our image of him has been strategically curated, often in service of those who are opposed to the things that he actually fought for. Hello and welcome to The Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup. UW-Madison welcomed Nicole Hannah-Jones to campus last week for the MLK Symposium. Hannah-Jones also took questions from student media representatives from the Black Voice and the Daily Cardinal. Our campus news writer Claire Laloberte was also there to cover the event. Thanks for being here, Claire. Thank you for having me. Just to start, can you explain what the MLK Symposium is and where and when it was held? Sure. Uh, So the MLK Symposium is an event held at UW-Madison annually um, to celebrate Martin Luther King Day. And it it was held this year in Shannon Hall at the Union. This year, our speaker was Nicole Hannah-Jones from the New York Times. Can you explain a little bit about who Nicole Hannah-Jones is and the kind of work that she does? Yeah, so she is the founder of the 1619 Project, which is a New York Times Magazine initiative that seeks to tell American history through the lens of um, specifically African Americans. Sort of the goal in that project is to reframe history so that it's not told so much through the perspective of um, generally white, wealthy, landowning men throughout history. It is trying to argue that we need to widen that lens, that we have focused on this very narrow lens that necessarily obscures many of the ugly parts of our history and erases people who have made a lot of contributions to the society that we live in. So it's not a rewriting, because you can't really rewrite history. What happened, happened. What you can do is refocus which parts of our history we're paying attention to and um, whose narratives were uplifting. And you could try to get to a more honest uh, understanding of history. Part of her speech was challenging the perceptions that we have of Dr. King. What did she say about that specifically in the context of the MLK Symposium? Yeah, so um, Martin Luther King is an interesting historical figure when you look at what he actually said during his lifetime versus what we hear in like education and in schools and in media growing up. Um, So you probably learned in school that MLK was very uh, peaceful and espoused an idea that we should all sort of create this uh, colorblind society where we don't think about the color of people's skin and um, was not particularly radical in his beliefs, but he actually was very politically radical. He was um, he was demonized at the time for his protests being violent and not being peaceful. Um, but in retrospect, we sort of ascribe uh, a level of uh, pacifism to him. Um, which, of course, was a value he, he held, but uh, it just shows how he was demonized at the time and now is venerated in history now that it's more um, convenient to do so. And uh, she spoke a lot about how MLK's beliefs have been watered down and sort of made more palatable and less threatening to power structures because he really advocated for a redistribution of power that um, and that part of his messaging has sort of been eliminated over the years in how it's been presented to us. 
I can't surprise people with Dr. King's words, but I'm going to open by reading some of Dr. King's words because what is remarkable to me is how in all of these celebrations, how seldom we actually talk about what Dr. King said. Most of us who don't study this don't actually have an idea of what he's actually fighting for. Uh, and would probably be shocked by reading uh, some of many, many of his speeches going all the way back from, to 1956. She urged us to sort of consider the actual values that he held to read his speeches and his uh, work in full and not to take at face value anything that we have maybe learned about him in our lives because a lot of uh, issues such as civil rights, um, we can't really trust the information we've been given throughout um, like the American education system and through media and all that stuff. Yeah, you also noted that the speech came at an interesting time for the state as the legislature moved to pass a bill that would prohibit teaching concepts associated with critical race theory. What did Hannah Jones have to say about that effort and how she views her project in that context? So she talked about how critical race theory, uh, it's interesting the moves made to ban it are coming from the same people who sort of espoused the American ideals of free speech and um they sort of the the rationale for banning it has to do with uh, the fact that they see it as like pushing a certain belief system onto children. Well, if you look at the actual uh, content of what would be banned, it's it's very broad uh, historical concepts such as racial inequity or white privilege or that sort of thing, which have become such um, sort of politicized buzzword type things that uh, that legislation is being passed right now to ban them without. Uh, sort of realizing that in the context of history, it's just indisputable that those things were a major part of the fabric of this country and how it's been, how it was created and how it continues to be run. Um, and she talked about how it's it's crucial to oppose those efforts, obviously, and it's crucial to sort of recognize that we can't um, take at face value what is said about critical race theory and how it's sort of being demonized in the media, um, because what it really is is just a, a looking at. Um, racial relations and and history through a lens of of understanding the inequity that has sort of shaped our society. What these laws are saying is texts that we don't agree with, texts that we think will make students think differently about their country, texts that say the country uh, is fundamentally racist, will be prohibited from being taught. That's indoctrination. Teaching something. Um, that supplements something else is not indoctrination. Because if we believe in the marketplace of ideas, which we could debate, um, but if we believe in that, then we believe that we put all the ideas and the best ideas win. But we don't say that certain ideas are so frightening that we take them off the table, that we can't even discuss them. That's indoctrination. That's how indoctrination works. Are there any other concepts that she touched on in her keynote speech? Well, aside from the critical race theory legislation and aside from sort of how we how we view Martin Luther King, she talked about how she personally has been subject to a lot of attacks um, from conservative groups and from from people who oppose what she's teaching as um, as the person who's sort of the face of this of this project and who is identified with, um, I guess, controversial uh, subjects in today's society. And, uh, you know, that's a real problem is that people who try to bring things like that to light are often attacked and demonized. And that's true of MLK himself. You know, he was, um, she, she did talk a lot of actually about the approval ratings of MLK at the time and sort of how the image that we have been shown of Martin Luther King is that he was this great hero and he was revered by 
all people and he was this champion of the movement, um, which of course is true when we look at it historically, but at the time, uh, only I think 25% of Americans approved the um, March on Washington, which is where the I have a dream speech that everybody now sort of views as very palatable, peaceful speech. Um, that's where that was given and most people didn't approve of it. There was a specific quote that she gave that I think 60 or 70% of Americans believed that black people were asking for things to be handed to them on a silver platter, um, which is just, you know, and she noted that, of course, what they were asking for was just equality and the rights that were already given to other people in the country. So it's interesting to sort of look at how MLK is viewed now and how he was viewed at the time, because we sort of don't really get that kind of perspective. What do you think students and other attendees might have taken away from this event? And was there anything that particularly surprised you? Um, yeah, I I think that I was impressed by the her sort of insistence on talking about real issues and not creating sort of like a feel-good type of speech about how we've overcome so many inequities in our history and stuff. She talked more about like, what we still need to do and what is currently being done that is exactly what um, MLK opposed in his lifetime and and how we need to continue to work for those values that he espoused because we are so far from achieving his his dream, you know? And I think that, I hope that what students and what attendees took away from that is that all, every one of us has that responsibility um, and that we can't really be, we can't be acquiescent at this point because we still have a really, really long way to go. Great. Thank you so much for coming on the show and covering this event, Claire. Yeah, of course. It was very, very interesting. And I would really encourage everybody to do some more reading on Nicole Hannah-Jones. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Our Spring Welcome Back print edition is now available online and at stands around campus. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. On this week's Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg discusses the ways disease can afflict one of her favorite animals, the red fox. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we'll be talking about the red fox. It's probably one of my favorite mammal species, and we probably admit about 8 to 10 foxes a year here at Dane County Humane Society. This last week, we have been graced by the presence of this beautiful young female red fox, probably in its first year of life, meaning that it was born this last summer, so maybe nine months older or maybe a little older. And this fox had come in with sarcoptic mange. And I know I've talked about sarcoptic mange in different segments here on Wildlife Weekly because obviously it's a prevalent little species here in our environment that does affect many different mammals. So we have the red fox, which is probably our most common species that we see that come down with sarcoptic mange. It's the little mite that buries very deep inside the skin and causes them to itch and 
skin scab and loose fur. Eventually, usually wounds will set in and infection and sepsis. Uh, so it's not a really fun thing for foxes to go through. But we've also seen coyotes with sarcoptic mange and possums and squirrels and even rabbits. So it is something that can be given to multiple different species. And there are different types of mites that are more species specific. So I wanted to talk a little bit more from the firsthand perspective of a rehabilitator about what happens when you see or experience a fox with mange. And then like, what's the process for that fox going through from admission to treatment? And then also kind of want to touch on some common do's and don'ts in these situations because we have the public calling and asking lots of questions about mangy fox or mangy coyote and like what options there are available for those animals. So first I want to talk about what it's like when you walk into a room and there's a red fox that has mange. I walk into the treatment room and in the exam room and I just smell this pungent, odorous, really kind of gross smell, almost skunk-like. Whenever you experience an animal kind of up close with mange or sarcoptic mange, it seems like it's a smell you'll never forget for the rest of your life. It's it's so kind of skunky that you smell it and you're like, whoop, that animal has mange. Um, and I know, of course, we have to use lots of diagnostic tests to confirm it. So we'll do what's called a skin scrape on that animal, which scrapes at the top layer of the skin. And we can put that on a slide and we'll be able to visualize the mites under a microscope. So that's the the actual diagnostic confirmation. However, the smell hits you right away and you're 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 definitely feeling bad for that animal because that's it's pretty stinky. And you know, animals like a fox obviously use their nose a lot, right? So it's probably not great for them to be smelling this as well. But then you walk over and you know, for us, all of our animals are in enclosures or cages for restricted housing for the treatment period so that they don't have as much, you know, mobility issues or they're not injuring themselves in larger caging while they're recovering initially. Uh, later on, they'll move out into bigger enclosures. But when they're first here, um, you have to use your imagination. This this female fox, just as an example, you know, you'll open the door to the cage and there's visual barriers on the outside. So I can't see anything until I maybe peek through just slightly. And we try not to disturb them at all. Like we're only doing this maybe once or twice a day if they need medications or food or just a visual wellness check. And you see that fox just curled up in a little ball, crusts and all. So imagine a red fox. You've probably seen them with their beautiful glossy fur. Instead, you're seeing these light tan to gray crusts, kind of like, you know, blow foam all over their fur is kind of what it looks like. And its eyes are squinted shut, probably goopy, probably some greenish discharge. And it's just curled up and quiet and sad. It might lift its head up a little bit to look at you, but can barely see through squinted eyes. So the ears are crusted, the eyes are crusted, the head is crusted, the whole body is crusted. A lot of times they're missing fur from their tail. And then this particular fox had uh, wounds over the back hips. And that was, you know, probably from sitting or scooting on it on its hind end all the time, you know, and those wounds have opened into sores that we have to flush daily. So trying to get that fox in in that kind of state, usually they don't put up a lot of struggle. But over the course of a couple of days, as they start feeling better with treatment, then we start having to make sure that we're being extra cautious. We might be using a net. Uh, we use something called a Freeman cage net, which allows us to put the net over the top of the fox and then kind of roll the net up. Up and at the end, there's a zipper. We can open it up and we can proceed with handling and our treatments. We definitely try to make sure that we're using as much safety equipment as possible. So we want to make sure that we're wearing gloves and protective equipment for mange. So we're wearing gowns and booties and probably double to triple layer of different gloves, our face masks during COVID times. So all of that is very helpful to make sure that we're not going to transmit those 
mange mites to ourselves. For the fox in the initial part of treatment, you know, we might be going into the cage, take them out, give fluids, maybe some pain medications, help clean those wounds up, and then basically putting them back. So we try to only do that for the first few days of treatment. We do use medications that kill the mites, and that's something that I should mention. It really only should be prescribed by a veterinarian or wildlife rehabilitator working with that veterinarian because there are a lot of things that you can use off-label to treat mange. There are some available, and I'm sure there's lots of information online. Just remember that if you do that, it's not only illegal, but you're also potentially putting it out into the environment to treat a mangy fox where another animal might eat it. And if you're going to put medications into food and leave it out in your neighborhood, for example, for a fox to eat, you know, what if a possum comes lumbering along and eats it? Or what if your neighbor's dog comes by and eats it because it's in something tasty that a fox would like to eat? Please remember that Anytime we do medications or treatments, this is all under licensing as wildlife rehabilitators here in the state of Wisconsin, and that veterinarians need to be involved. There is no way around that, and veterinarians also shouldn't be prescribing medications to put out in the environment. Again, it's not legal. So we're very glad that this fox was able to be live trapped and actually brought to us so that we can do the proper rehabilitation. And then once that fur is back and the mites are gone, then we can revisit releasing back in the same area. So the fox gets its medications and then it's going to be, you know, a good couple of weeks. It could be up to six weeks or more for that hair to start falling off, the mites to start, you know, dying. It only takes a couple days for the mites to start dying, but we have to give baths regularly to the fox and regularly meaning maybe once a week or every two weeks, but we have to make sure that they can stay warm because they're at risk to hypothermia. And then we have to wait for the hair to grow back. It's wintertime, right? I'm not going to put a, a poor naked fox outside in the cold. They have different layers of fur that have to grow back. One of the ways that I like to talk about is that it's multiple structures, kind of like, you know, how birds have the natal down underneath their covert feathers that are then, you know, adjacent or covering their their remiges, which are their flight feathers. Well, for mammals like this fox, you're going to have a down coat, which is the really, um, you know, smooth, soft underlayer of fur. And then that's going to be covered by things like guard hairs, for example. Guard hairs are important because they can help with the structure of the fur, but it also gives them extra, you know, follicles to guard the hair and the underfur together. And those are the long ones, and those are the ones that take a lot longer to grow back. So this fox is going to go through multiple weeks of losing fur, and then regrowing the undercoat, and then the on hair and the guard hair, and that's when we feel ready for release. So the fox, depending on the weather and the temperature, might be able to go out somewhere in between the on hair and guard hair regeneration, but otherwise we like to wait until they at least have a nice warm enclosure, a snuggle, you know, something that's going to stay out of the wind and the cold if they're even in that in-between stage. So that's, you know, what happens. Basically, medications, mites go away, the fur falls off, the fur regrows, and all this time we're giving them fresh food. We're giving them, you know, pain medications to get through this and antibiotics if needed for the wounds. So it's a long, long process for this animal. But in the end, it is so worth it to see that fox released out in the wild. It's amazing to see the before and after pictures. And I would encourage you to check on our Facebook. We did post a few photos of that and on our Instagram of the fox that we currently have in care. And you can see us working with it uh, during its first couple of days receiving medications. So definitely check us out, Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Center. But also, if you see a mangy fox and you have questions, not sure what to do, don't try putting out medications in the environment yourself or hand feeding any sort of wild animal. You definitely don't want to get that close and, and do something wrong to it. So give us a call if you have questions. And that number is 608 
287-3235. Otherwise, I hope this was an informative session about Red Fox and what it's like going from treatment to release in a mange case. Thanks for listening. This has been Wildlife Weekly on WORT. It's now 6.53 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? Is it a flying saucer? Well, it probably isn't that last one. Scientists have discovered something strange in our skies. On this week's Radio Astronomy, contributor Daniel Ribarchuk investigates a blinking anomaly high above us. Welcome to Radio Astronomy. My name is Dan Rabarczyk. Today, we're talking about an exotic, unexpected object whose discovery was announced last week in the journal Nature. A group of Australian astronomers were using the Murchison Wide Field Array Telescope in Australia to search for radio waves coming from space. This telescope was designed to search for radio waves with specific frequencies that are known to be produced in extremely exotic environments, such as rare stars with extremely strong magnetic fields, or interactions between stars and their planets. This particular object, named Gleam XJ16275.5-5200, the names of astronomical objects have become less romantic in the era of big data, was actually discovered by an undergraduate student the object was observed to have periodic emission. It showed a bright pulse every 18.18 minutes, like clockwork. Now, lots of astronomical objects are known to emit periodically at radio wavelengths, so maybe this wouldn't seem especially surprising. But what's unique about this particular object is that its 18-minute period is longer than that of any other object in this class of periodic radio emitters. No known astronomical objects seem to fit the bill for this particular source. And besides its abnormal periodicity, it is also extremely bright and appears to be strongly magnetized. The radio emission from this source is strongly polarized, which means that it's mostly ordered in one direction. When light travels in a particular direction, it is accompanied by oscillating electric and magnetic fields, which are oriented randomly in many different directions. But when light is polarized, these electric and magnetic fields become aligned in a particular direction. There are several mechanisms for polarizing light. One of the most powerful and common methods of polarizing light in an astronomical context is magnetic fields. The extremely high degree polarization in the light coming from this newly discovered source tells us that it must be coming from an environment with an extremely powerful magnetic field. So the unexpected period, the strong magnetic field, and 
the intense brightness of this source have led to several different hypotheses about its origin. For example, a theoretical object called an ultra-long period magnetar would explain the observed characteristics of the source, but since no other such object has ever been seen before, we have no other examples to compare it to. It could also be a white dwarf star, the tiny remnant of a sun-like star, spinning very rapidly. But again, no white dwarf has ever been known to rotate this fast or be so bright. So the astronomers who discovered this object have now proposed some follow-up observations to test the different theoretical explanations for it. They also plan to search existing archival observations for similar objects. Perhaps there are other sources like this one, and by studying more of them, we may get clues to their nature and origin. It has been over 400 years since astronomers first began using telescopes to study outer space. And to this day, we continue to find new and unexpected things in the universe by looking up with curiosity and an open mind. Here's a new object that nobody predicted and that we can't explain. And now we might learn some new things about physics and the universe by figuring out where it comes from. That's all for Radio Astronomy. Have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter on assignment is Heron Splinter. Your headline writer was Sophie Lakey. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the radio astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Dave Lawrence and engineered the show. Nate Wagehout produced this newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WRT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish Language News with Anoisha Patio. Good night. <laughs>